millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's no longer very new culture podcast with me, Tom Gatti. I'm culture editor of The New Statesman. And me, Kate Mossman, the arts editor of the same publication. And today, what are we going to be talking about today, Kate? We're going to be talking about the Channel 4 drama Kiri, Jack Thorne's new four-parter about a social services scandal. And also about the fantastic new... Oh, I've given my, my opinion away there. Damn, maybe Ryan Gilby will hate it, who's joining me. Um, what the, will they think? What will they think? Uh, Coco, the new Disney film. Pixar film, Pixar. Yeah. Um, and we will have the umpteenth in our non-important anniversaries. And it's very non-important today. So, it is. So you need to watch out for that. It won't even register. It's so unimportant. But we need some more suggestions, because we've only had sort of one so far. And often they're quite serious things that, that people suggest, and we need them to be slightly more... Slightly less relevant, in fact, to, it, to the population. It's low rent, isn't it? That's, yeah. That's the key with the non-aversary. We, uh, we need things that are, are at the bottom of the ladder. Yes. Um, Not on the mind. No. And we, we, were, we were struggling to find a way to cram this into the non-aversary, but, but couldn't. But Kate and I have both been deep in uh, editing. You know, it's like that scene in the social network where these guys are like sitting in their laptops coding and someone goes over to like interrupt, interrupt them and go, don't he's locked in um, <laughs> and so we're, we we sit opposite each other with our with our headphones we both on. have new headphones don't we we've both got new headphones. bluetooth bluetooth so, at great expense so far the streams haven't crossed and we we haven't sent our bluetooth music to each other but we have been swapping editing music tips mm. um kate what's your uh, sort of go-to editing music? Well, my go-to do writing music is a song by Van Halen called Dreams that I think was used on the Power Rangers film, maybe Power Rangers 2 or something. And it's sort of late Van Halen before, you know, after people thought they were important to talk about. But I know it so well that I'm not aware of it. So right. It's sort of white noise. And it's very inspiring, very, very stimulating and invigorating to listen to. And it has a guitar break that sounds like a horse whinnying in it. And when I get to that bit, I'm like, yeah, put it on again. Um, but in terms of editing, actually, at the moment, it's Clanad. Yes. Because Clanad. it's so, it's soothing. And, you know, I think that elvish kind of language that you often hear in Clanad or you, or you think you're hearing, it doesn't really um, interfere with the words you're trying to focus on on the page. How about you? Clanad, of course, held dearly in my heart for their soundtracking of the 
1980s Robin Hood TV drama. Which so I didn't see, but you talk man. about often. Yeah, The Hooded Man. It's, um, it's, it's a song that probably has zero credibility, but um, I... Re- I return to often. Yeah, we will try and I will try and crowbar that into an anniversary at some point. How does the song go? It goes Robin the Hooded Man. <laughs> and that is exactly what it sounds and like. And it has like the men if, of Cranad singing the chorus too, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's not just the sort of Enya sounding voice, it's the proper sort of the textures of the whole of the Cranad outfit. No, this this Robin Hood was one that tried to both be a little bit more gritty and also tap into some of the kind of more mythical mystical elements of the legend i must go back to it i've got it on a vhs somewhere but yeah um for me it's anything that i don't have to listen to too closely so there was another 90s album by future sound of london very early ambient record that i listened to a lot called life forms and then recently i know nothing about prog music at all but i started listening to tangerine dream That could work. Which is good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that probably rap is probably the least editing friendly music. Too many words, too short space of time. Prog uh, goes well. Jazz jazz works unless it's too John Coltrane-y and there's something about, yeah, the sheer number of notes crammed into a bar that just interferes again and the whole thing goes haywire. So, um, so there get you have editing, it, some <laughs> get some words, start <laughs> editing them, put dreams on by Van Halen. We have a special guest with us this week. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ryan Gilby. I'm the film critic of The New Statesman. Yeah, great to have you here, Ryan. We're going to be talking about Coco today. This is the highest grossing film in Mexico ever. Yeah, of all time. That's right. The previous one, I think, was Pixar as well. Not Machete. Uh, (laughs) Let's get those stereotypes right out the window straight away. That's what it's all about. Yeah. 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, which of course is the way that we uh, we assess films nowadays. <laughs> That's how I decide what I think, yeah, looking at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> um, it's just it's just a wonder, isn't it, this film? I mean, so, I was, you sometimes have that moment after a film in that kind of, when you have the glow and you think, but there must be something wrong with it. There must be something that didn't work. I just, I just um, think this, that it's beautiful. Yeah, this yeah, is a film about a, a little boy who gets um, temporarily trapped in the afterlife um, trying to seek the blessing of a famous musician because his family don't want him to be involved with music. And while he's in there, he learns a lot of lessons about his ancestry and about the importance of home. But it's quite, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was sobbing at the end of this film and I was looking down the row of people in the cinema next to me and they were all adults and everybody was just like covered in snot and tears. And <laughs> did you cry? I, I, the weird thing is I didn't. I was, I was very moved watching it. Um, but thinking about it afterwards, it brought tears to my eyes. And I'm sure I'll cry when I see it again. This is the thing I find with Pixar films. They are so kind of freighted with um, with meaning and uh, and drama and things like that. And there's such this, there's this, almost this kind of undertow of emotion that you see them again and it's not in any way diminished. Inside Out was a, a good example, which I, I liked the first time I saw it. And the second time I was in floods of tears. I don't know what happened, something something switched. But yeah, the clever thing with Coco is that, um, I mean, as you say, it's, it's, it's music is one of its themes because Miguel, the 12-year-old boy in it, his family have kind of outlawed music because his great, great, great grandfather, I think it is, left his wife and went off to be a balladeer, went off to be a musician. And so music is kind of forbidden in the house. So music is a subject of the film, but weirdly, it's not a musical, is it? It's got that one key song mm. that we won't say too much about because it plays a really important part. Um, and everything um, is put 
uh, everything you know you you usually have kind of emotion and, and narrative kind of scattered through different songs in a film if it's to do with music but here it's all on this one song and it has an incredible kind of wallop when it comes to yeah, the end I think there's a lot find. of um, a lot of discussion about this being um Pixar and Disney's anti-Trump movie because there's not a single American character in it it's an all American Latino cast all the music is Mexican so the little boy wants to be a musician but he doesn't want to be a pop star he just wants to play mariachi and traditional guitar and everything that's right and there's that kind of Matalay idol kind of musician yeah. that he, he idolizes and tries very to traditional and yeah. and it's and it's it's beautifully done and and I was reading some um pieces that, that were kind of saying today like you know let's take Trump out of this. He's got enough real estate in our minds anyway. Let's just enjoy this film. <laughs> That's a really nice way to put it. And this has been in development. I mean, this was greenlit in 2011. So, you know, it goes way back. And and the vilification of, of Mexico and Mexicans isn't something new. Trump just happens to be the latest kind of manifestation of it. I read somewhere that actually Mexican kids had to sit in the balcony in cinemas until a certain point. And I don't know when that was, really? when that was changed, that. but wow. they were actually segregated. And mm. that in that respect, is the, the one of the co-directors is the guy who actually worked as a, a 2D animator on Ratatouille. Yeah, so this is Adrian <laughs> Molina, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. so he's right. risen up the ranks quite fast. Yeah, you see that happen a lot. I mean, Tim Burton started out as a Disney animator, didn't he, on Fox and the Hound in like 1980 or something. So so yeah, it's nice to kind of trace people's... Uh, and he's the co-writer and co-director, I think, Adrian Molina. Well, well you know, he's, he's Mexican and you've got so much kind of authenticity here that the filmmakers did or well, they say embedded themselves they hung out with mexican families yeah and, uh, <laughs> and they went to mexico on holiday yeah we've got not not talking the in the kind of language of the production notes <laughs> but um yeah they, they hung out with some mexican families and got all sorts of i mean there's incredible detail in it and um, i was reading some interviews with kind of mexican families who've been to see the film and they said that's the thing that bowled them over like you know, I won't begin to list the the, the various things that they noticed because I can't remember how to pronounce them. But mm. there's all, you know, from culinary details to kind of uh, patterning on clothes and things like that. It's so kind of specific. And one of my favourite things in the film is this beautiful bridge of marigold leaves that goes from the living to the dead. Um, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, really thick kind of pile of leaves. Beautiful burning of, orange. Yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous. And that, that came about simply because... Um, when the filmmakers were hanging out with these Mexican families on the, uh, during the Day of the Dead celebrations, they saw that um, the families leave a trail of marigold petals going from their houses to show the dead, to show the spirits how to find their way back home, which is mm. a really beautiful idea. And they kind of ran with that and turned it into this amazing bridge in the film. You mentioned Inside Out. Do you think that Pixar's and, and these sort of Disney Pixar's are getting actually more emotionally deep as we go on? Do you think there's more um, sort of heft to them in terms of things that they're they're examining? Or has it always been there? Um, I think the emotional content has always been there, right from, you know, Toy Story was the first feature they did. Um, and that's incredibly deep and rewarding and, and, and kind of rich in its emotional content. Um, but I think, yeah, it's always been there. And this is what sets them apart from, from other animation studios, say, um, you know, old DreamWorks stuff like Shrek and things like that, or um, or the current ones, Illumination, who do the Despicable Me films and did Sing. I mean, you know, they're all very jolly and entertaining, but they there's no, uh, they don't really have any afterlife. They're just kind of bright colours. Um, and I think that um, they don't, they just lack that kind of emotional component that Pixar or Studio Ghibli have, for instance. Yeah. Um, we're, where we're, they think about story and resonance. And we're always looking for, you know, what makes them sort of more more sort of modern in their um, characterization. And everyone's saying about Frozen, for instance, oh, it's a girl at the center. She doesn't get the, the sort of Prince Charming. She gets the, you know, the shepherd, the smelly right. shepherd. It's all about her relationship with her sister and everything. You kind of build up these sort of political constructions to kind of make yourself feel better about watching them. <laughs> but this one, I mean, I mean, this is so off the scale. It has, you know, it ends with the scene of a boy 
bringing his grandmother temporarily out of a state of dementia yeah. by singing her a song that he's heard from her dead father in the afterlife. I know, the intergenerational I mean, stuff. Exactly, yeah. the intergenerational stuff is fantastic in the film. Do you remember right at the beginning when Miguel's narrating and he says, this is my grandmother, uh, she doesn't really know who I am or, any, or about anything I say, but I talk to her anyway because it makes her happy. Yeah. And that's just... Just in that like fleeting moment, that's incredibly mm. profound. And you just see him kind of telling her about his day and kind of showing him, showing her how he's learnt to run or something, his yeah. new running style or something. And then and the power of music to bring somebody, you yeah. know, that, that being sort of so ingrained in the muscle memory of people that they can still sing, but oh, they can't it's actually just fantastic. talk. So moving. And Pixar do this thing, so do that so effortlessly, don't you think? I mean, Inside Out was, Inside Out was basically all set inside the, the mind of a um, teenage girl who's having a nervous breakdown. And it's really, it's really what a hard sell as well. <laughs> oh, that's what I love about them, though. I mean, they did that they that great trilogy kind of in the late two thousand uh, to yeah two thousand seven, I think it was around that time, where it was up and uh, Wally and Ratatouille. So a film about an old man, a film about a rat, and a film about a tin box. <laughs> it's like, you know, and there was this famous kind of, I think Disney were just in the process of buying Pixar at that point. And there was this famous kind of uproar about all these unmerchandisable films. <laughs> so quickly, soon after that, I think we got the Cars sequel so they could sell lots of, lots of merchandise. What did you think about Frida Kahlo appearing in it? Oh, that was fantastic. Yeah. I, see, there's so much in the film. I'd completely forgotten about that. The beautiful, like, stage show. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's, it's yeah, just a complete That's true. You're good at not doing spoilers. I just want to do the spoilers <laughs> all the time. But it's kind of like an irreverent, sort of um, uh, sort of touching, but slightly irreverent image of Frida Kahlo in her. That's Demented, sort of, basically. Yeah, yeah. Almost as like this kind of crazy, crazy performance. Yeah, very affectionate, but yeah. <laughs> as a skeleton, of course, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. This is the beautiful thing for, for young children watching this. I mean, half the characters are dead yeah. and half of them are alive and you just you completely take that for granted don't you while you're watching completely I mean I mentioned I compared it to Beetlejuice in my in my review in the magazine and it had that same kind of feeling for me that kind of um, I mean you know more emotional heft as we were saying than, than something like that but but just that real liveliness and sprightliness and um, we're also also talking earlier about whether it was suitable for younger children I think it's probably a bit too creepy and a bit too grown mm. up maybe um, in in that regard, but um, but yeah, it just has so much life, so much energy. Go and see it now, uh, regardless of what age you are. Maybe if you're really young, don't go and see it. If you're really old, do. So I absented myself from that last item because I have not yet seen Coco. Although on the strength of that, I um, I will be making every effort to do so. But I have seen Kiri, which is. Jack Thorne's new Channel 4 drama starring Sarah Lancashire. We've just had the second episode last night. So this is a four-part drama about a social worker played by Sarah Lancashire who arranges for a young black child to go and visit her birth grandparents during the process of being formally adopted by a white middle-class family. And the girl goes missing. And it's the fallout from that event, I guess, right? Mm. It's very rapid. It's a bit um, like uh, National Treasure, which was the fantastic um, drama that he did with Robbie Coltrane about um, a sort of Saville-esque kind of figure yeah. in the media. And the aperture shrinks straight away, doesn't it? Mm. You're straight into the action. The, the girl's gone within within minutes. At the same time, it's got, like National Treasure, the same sort of slow excavation of responsibility and guilt and the light and shade to people's characters and their pasts. And it's it's fascinating the way 
he manages to take, um, I think it's something about the, you know, the, what we bring to the idea of characters. We see people and we think, oh, that's a good person, that's a bad person. And then he just unpicks to the point where you just don't know who's responsible for what and it's completely gripping. Yeah, I guess um, we're used to the idea of consistency in character and what Thorne and, and other good sort of fiction writers do is, is just undercut that and undercut our expectations. So Sarah Lancashire, you know, you're you're rooting from her for her from the beginning and especially if you've seen her in other things like happy valley you know she's a she's she often plays strong characters she's a very strong actor you know you're you're on her side and while that doesn't necessarily completely change you start to see her weaknesses you know you see that she's basically a kind of borderline alcoholic mm. You, Swigging from a little hip flask, which yeah. is a shame in a way. You kind of feel disappointed when you see that he's written that in, because I think as Rachel Cook pointed out in her review of this for us, it's sort of be nice to see this kind of strong female social worker character going home to a, a family and kids at the end of the day and still having the tremendous stress of being a social worker rather than coming home to a farting dog and a hip <laughs> flask. There is a, an amazing dog in it that, um, that just has constant flatulence. <laughs> Um, and at one point, I mean, she has such such brilliant surreal lines. At one point, when her life is sort of unraveling, she she claims to have eaten the dog with a baked I potato. Wrote down that, quote. that was the one quote I was going to say. <laughs> She's having a fag, like as a way of showing my love. I ate him with a baked potato. I ate Jesse as a way of expressing my love. Yeah, yeah. So she's kind of full of these these really odd deadpan gags, <laughs> the kind of things that you know. If someone you didn't know that well said them, you'd be kind of, ha, 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 uh, okay. <laughs> the fact being, of course, that she gets named in the, which is unusual. You don't usually in, in the news hear the naming of the social worker in one of these cases straight away. So that's, Her name is leaked, right? It's leaked, yeah. yes, that's it. Um, and so as the investigation goes on and the reenactments happen to trace where this girl's gone, she's, she's the one who's in the spotlight. Um, for me, it was the, the fantastic use of kind of office language mm. um the the speed with which her colleagues turn against her when this happens mm. and this sort of this dazzling there's a particular line that that i wrote down um she she's told by a female colleague 99 percent of the time you are exceptional but there are times when you follow your own judgment and you know that this is kind of couched in oh okay but that sounds like a bit of praise what on earth does that mean you know 99% of the time you're actually exceptional mm. 1% of the time what are you you know and she says you love that statistic don't you because she repeats it twice and you think the the kind of yeah the speed with which she's suddenly the the sole person to be to blame for this this crisis and the fact that following your own judgment is you know, is a negative thing. And, yeah. and I suppose that's in, in terms of like our culture of accountability, that's what this really taps into in, in, in the world of care, of health, of teaching. You know, these are, these are people who are kind of working on the, on the front line and yet they're supposed to, you know, tick all these sort of criteria and they, they are supposed to use their own judgment, but only if it doesn't sort of get them into trouble yeah. or, or doesn't kind of cross any boundaries, which inevitably it, it has to do. Um, They're making emotional judgments all the time and she, mm. she's actually wanted the child to have access to her birth grandparents because she thought it would speed up the adoption process for the the white family who is adopting the child. So there's there's this sort of sense of had that decision worked out perfectly, it would have been a great, you know, uh, perfect judgment to have made, but because it didn't. As I was saying, I think that is slightly undercut though. And, and 
the more I was thinking about it towards the end of the second episode, I was playing back um, moments from this first episode where once she's dropped Kiri at her grandparents, she's sort of obviously a, a bit worried and a bit unsure about it. And she's very breezily saying to everyone, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, because she's trying uh, to not make the child get kind of emotional or upset about it. But she does have reservations, I think. And that's what's that's what's interesting. And and presumably that's part of the reason it hits her so hard is, uh, you know, she will be, as you do before you make a mistake, after you make a mistake, rather, you'll be going back and replaying those those doubts in, in her mind. The press intrusion is, is very well done, I think. And it gives you a sense of how horrifying it must be to be in that situation where you arrive home and try and get out of your car and, and there are people kind of, lying on your bonnet basically kind of shouting <laughs> questions and there's a there's a scene where um if you were to see it on the script lancashire actually you know faces the press and gives extremely eloquent speech saying i did exactly the right thing by the child in this situation i was not thinking of the family i was not thinking of myself or the services but she delivers the speech um in a shout She's emotional about it mm. because she's absolutely at her wit's end. Mm. And it's you can tell that the fact that she's delivered it in this sort of emotional state um, immediately undermines the, the content of what she's saying because one of the, the reporters immediately says to her, have you had a drink today? Yeah, which of course she has. Which yeah. of course she has. Yeah. So it doesn't matter yeah. how true it is that what's coming out of her mouth, the fact that she showed emotion when she was saying it means that she's lost it. You know, She's over, she needs to be struck off. Um, my wife, Claire, uh, pointed something out, which is we get all these scenes of, of the press around her house. So one odd thing was why when the, the son is eventually found um, at the grandfather's house, I don't think that's too much of a spoiler if you haven't watched the second episode yet. There's no one there. This is like the key sort of dramatic scene and <laughs> there's no press there at all. So that was a bit odd. And as you said about the hip flask, okay, this is, although... Um, Jack Thorne is a brilliant writer. It's not totally immune to some of the cliches mm. of TV drama, is it? And that that hip flask thing just puts her back in the same dynamic as any sort of TV detective. You know, this is this is a kind of this yeah. is a very familiar crush, coming home isn't to the it? takeaway at night. It's the classic. You know, it's been going on for decades. That that image of the the lonely detective, the lonely social worker. The... Yeah, and and I also thought the. Um, Possibly, although again, I think it's very well done. The relationship between the adoptive um, father and mother. Um, she's a kind of emotional, irrational, you know, unpredictable woman, and he's the sort of um, polite, ineffectual but stable husband. I, I feel like yes. I've seen that dynamic quite a lot. They're the masterpiece of the sort of um, repressed, uptight, brittle yeah. middle class family. Which yeah. again, you know, we don't know how it's going to end, but mm. the idea that possibly. Thorn might subvert the obvious who done it, and mm. it, you know who knows. It might be the the family itself. Who knows? We don't know. By the way, we haven't seen the end. Um, but I do love um, the character, the the actress who plays the adoptive mother, um, Leah Williams. I yes, saw her in the um, yeah. She was in the Missing, the second series of the Missing. She played a similar character, this sort of extremely controlled, but but almost wild under the surface woman mm. who has a huge past. And in the Missing, she played a an ex-Gulf War captain who had a complete breakdown out in Iraq and who was now living quietly with a village butcher in Germany and was just waiting to explode. And she, she's something about her face, the placidity of it, but the watery eyes and the fact she's either 
almost on the verge of, of, of crying or having sex at any point. <laughs> she just always seems to be having these really steamy sex scenes written in her characters. And I, I, I hadn't seen her much until the last couple of years. I feel like she's kind of hit her stride with, with bigger roles recently, but she's, she's in the West End in something at the moment. No, the cast is really, really strong. Um, who, who, else, who else is worthy of mention? Um, Papa Esedu um, as the father is, is fantastic and, again, has one of these great, like Sarah Lancashire's speech, uh, him and Lucian Masamati, who plays his father, um, have a great sort of set, you know, quite stagey in a way, um, where, they, where you kind of learn about their relationship. Um, earlier on in their lives. Um... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Something that I, I listened to a discussion of this on, on Front Row um, last week, I think it was, and um, they had a writer on there, Drew Say Mitchell, um, who was uh, very disappointed in the representation of the black characters, um, purely on the kind of bare facts of it that you've got the young black man in it is a drug dealer, he's violent, he's an ex-offender. Even the what she called the positive black female character, who's the sort of detective inspector played by Wumi Masaku, has been in care. Um, and that their story is effectively most eloquently expressed by Sarah Lancashire, the white woman character. I mean, I think we haven't seen it all. I think, as I said, he's he is really good at kind of taking apart these um, uh, some of these stereotypes, but um, I wonder what conversations went on in mm. the in the kind of in the Channel Four offices before deciding to go down this route road. Because although you know, I can sort of see where she's coming from with that. They would have been millions of hours spent you know having trying to make this as, as delicately carefully done as yeah. possible and they, they have avoided some of the more um obvious things like it's not like the girl's been sent back to nigeria no, or anything like no. that or involved in, you know there were stories in 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 the press of of black magic and of of all sorts of terrible things female yeah. circumcision happening to young um, young uh, British-born African girls. There's none of that. Mm. It's not about that. It's about, but it's actually sort of more about a class divide, isn't it? So you're looking at um, people who have struggled with poverty and drug addiction versus the the very very posh house in the upmarket area of, of Bristol and the kind of um, psychological problems that that family might have as well. So in a way, it almost has as many cliches about the white middle class as it does yeah. about the the black lower working class. It's just it's a it's a very interesting thing, but it's not quite 
I remember with National Treasure, the incredible ambiguity at the end of that uh, was one of its strengths that you were just you were just left not not knowing. And I feel in this that we are going to get yeah the Who Done It solved. It has moved into a more more traditional Who Done It, hasn't it? And you can see that by um, if you if you Google around, you'll see the kind of um, uh, newspapers like the Express have got you know whole articles now. Who killed the schoolgirl? Here are all the suspects <laughs> and. Viewers left unnerved as they noticed this in seriously disturbing scene. Creepy. <laughs> Watch out for the, uh, if you haven't watched it yet, for the teenage son as well. It's a masterpiece of um, yeah, that silent is a threat from a 15-year-old boy. Yeah, God, really... so he can drink a glass of orange juice and make it frightening. <laughs> you don't know what he's going to do. And he just says, that was nice, actually. <laughs> I thought he was going to like smash his mother's head off with it or something. But no, no, no. Just something in his eyes. We are at risk of becoming the Jack Thorne show, aren't we? Because we just did Christmas Carol, mm. which he did as well. And then um, I'm sure when his adaptation of Philip Pullman's Northern Lights comes out, I'll, I'll be desperate to um, see that and talk about that. But he is, a, he is a remarkable talent. Yes, the last time we watched Jack Thorne, he was sort of rolling walnuts and Brussels, Brussels sprouts down sheets in the old Vic with a giant <laughs> turkey swinging from the ceiling. So it's very, it's a very different it's kettle of fish. Versatile chap. Okay, Kiri is on Channel 4 Wednesday nights. Kate, you mentioned our respective new pairs of Bluetooth headphones earlier. And this morning I was sitting on the bus and um, my, my headphones are quite new, so I haven't sort of totally got to grips with them. And I realized that I wasn't able to hear my music through my headphones. And that was because I was just simply blaring it through my phone. <laughs> and as I was preparing for this podcast, no. what I was listening to was the opening bars of Alexandra Burke's version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. <laughs> because uh, for our non-anniversary this week, we had decided to mark the momentous occasion of nine years since Alexandra Burke's Hallelujah was riding high at number one. By January 2009, this single had sold over one million copies in the UK alone, which was a first for a British female soloist. Incredible. And half a million copies in its first week as well, which, I mean, the fact that it is now, what, it's the X Factor's biggest winner ever, biggest song ever which given that it was nine years ago, just proves that the X Factor is over <laughs> with its shrinking, rapidly shrinking figures. This was a what we could call a sort of non-nuanced take on one of Leonard Cohen's most famous songs. And do you remember the battle in the charts at the time that they went and released Jeff Buckley's? Yeah, so this, um, the X Factor not being hugely on my radar, this, this did get on my radar because, you know, like many, I know and love the song. Um, so my ears pricked up when I heard it kind of blasting through the radio with um, soupy strings, soupy backing singers, breathy ululations, and then suddenly morphing into a sort of 80s power ballad with uh, gospel injection. Um, it's not It's not terrible. It's just, you know, it's just what it is. But yeah, no, a lot of people were very upset. <laughs> Uh, and perhaps had I been a bit younger at the time, I might have been very upset as well because um, less less from Leonard Cohen worship, but from Jeff Buckley worship. Yeah, um, a lot of people feel very strongly about Jeff Buckley's version of the song, which is which is indeed incredible. And they um, they launched a a project to to get it to number one. 
Which is, that had become a bit of a thing by then, hadn't it? I'm sure they did it with Rage Against the Machine. Um, they got to number two, actually, didn't it? This, the, the Buckley. The Buckley did, I, yeah. I believe it did. Did it? And Amazing. it's quite valiant. I mean, it's almost quaint now to think that, you know, we would try and combat the power of the TV talent show by releasing <laughs> the original version. And that's, it says such a lot that we just gave up. So the fact that this doesn't sound too terrible now means that we've just accepted that this is what music sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. This is what you get. But yeah, apparently, I, I heard somewhere that she, she was asked about it and she said, it just didn't do anything for me. She wasn't over enamored of the, of the, song, the song choice herself. Really? <laughs> I, I did check this out. I may be wrong on this. Please tell us if we are wrong. But yeah, she is quoted as saying it didn't do much for me, to be honest. She gives it, you know, she, she gives it what she's got, I reckon, in the, in the recording. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> a song, it, it's a, you know... Like all really, really great songs, it it can survive lots of different versions. I mean, this has been through Leonard Cohen, John Cale, Jeff Buckley, Rufus Wainwright. Um, it was on Shrek, wasn't it? It was on Shrek, yeah. Uh, which version was that on Shrek? Oh, I think I feel like that was the Jeff Buckley one. Or what? maybe the Rufus Wainwright one. Yeah, possibly. I ha- I'm not a very good judge of Leonard Cohen the other day because... Because I was I was in the shower and I had the radio four on, so I knew that Desert Island Discs was playing. And I could hear in the distance what I thought was possibly the worst song ever written. It was such a basic melody and it was sung out of tune and it had like a sort of really cheap synth pop kind of background. And I thought, how has this got on there? Is this someone's personal project that their dad recorded <laughs> and they're remembering their dad and this kind of thing? Um, and I actually put the shower water off and got the, the towel and got out to go and listen to it to see what it was because it was so bad. And it turned out to be, I'm afraid to say, First We Take Manhattan by Leonard Cohen from 1988, um, his uh, synth pop synth pop song. So I don't know whether that was the distorting effect of the water or whether I'm just I've just got terrible taste, but I thought it was really bad. I mean, to a lot of people that will be sacrilege and, and <laughs> no doubt, you know, if anyone can find you they'll they'll direct their hate mail to you. But I I you know, there there is I, I mean I love Leonard Cohen, but I can see if you came to him as an alien landing on Earth, um and you've got these sort of weird backing singers and this often very cheesy production singing you, i'd really like to lie beside you baby i love your body yeah but it, it's 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 done with a lot of uh, a lot of wit and, and nuts, it is and, it? and i think it's probably a masterpiece but i just i just don't recommend you listening to something <laughs> from 20 feet with hot water going on your head because then you know dylan will sound terrible the beatles would sound terrible and you'll be running around naked trying to work out what it is in anger well, the the song will survive. Happy ninth anniversary to Alexandra Burke's version of Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Back Half, and thank you to our film critic Ryan Gilby for coming in to talk about Coco. His his review of the film is in this week's magazine, which, as usual, I heartily recommend. Do get in touch on Twitter. Do rate us in the iTunes store. Um, rate us highly. And Kate, yeah. over to you. We'll be playing you out with the much-covered, much-celebrated international hit, Godspeed by Pistol Jazz. Pistol Jazz.